Alrighty, well, welcome again to our morning service where we get to worship the Lord. Take your Bible, if you will, your copy of the Word of God, and turn to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy, this will be our last, uh, our last Sunday of the month, of course, and our last message in 1 Timothy for a while, unless the Lord leads. He could always change his mind and change my mind. But we are in 1 Timothy chapter 6 this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Now, we'll jump around a couple places. Um, but mostly right there in 1 Timothy chapter 6. I want to begin reading. I want to read the whole chapter to you this morning. It's, it's not real long. It's only 21 verses, and we won't touch on every verse there, but I want to read it in context uh, to let you know that, it's, uh, that I'm not taking anything out of context. And just to give you, you know, a, a, maybe a, a greater field of view, a more of a situational awareness, I guess you would say. You know, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy are obviously letters from Paul to the apostle, uh, to the pastor at Ephesus there, Timothy, his son in the faith. And 2 Timothy, kind of an intro for, for next week, is his last letter to Timothy and his last letter ever, ever written that we have. So, you know, if we had a letter today, say from our father or from a best friend, and it was the last thing he ever wrote, that kind of now, all Scripture is profitable, it's for reproof, and all of it's on the same playing field, if you will. It's all level before God. Uh, but there's some significance, uh, a different perspective we look at that. And this is his first letter. Paul loved Timothy. And I think that's important for us to understand. And he cared for him deeply. And he wanted him to live a life that brought glory to God. And we're going to talk a little bit about that this morning, how we can live a life that brings glory to God. I mean, as Christians... Is there a higher goal? There's no higher goal than to live a life that brings glory to God. And there are some things we can do. I think one of the greatest things that brings glory to God is to lead another soul to God. I think, you know, the Bible says that angels rejoice in heaven when that happens. And God gets glory uh, not just because we're living right, but when we're leading, when we're living in a way that leads others uh, to bring glory to Him. Uh, and with that said, let's look at verse number 1. Of chapter 6 of 1 Timothy. The Bible says, Paul writes, Let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, that the name of God and His doctrine be not blasphemed. And they that have believing masters, let them not despise them, because they are brethren, but rather do them service, because they are faithful and beloved, partakers of the benefit. These things teach and exhort. If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness. From such withdraw thyself, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and is certain we can carry nothing out. Having, and having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which some coveted after. They have erred from the faith, and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But thou... O man of God, but thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight of faith. 
lay hold on eternal life. Whereunto thou art also called and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. I give thee charge in the sight of God, who quickeneth all things, and before Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession, that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in his times he shall show who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. Charge them that are rich in this world, that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who giveth us richly all things to enjoy, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. Oh, Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science, falsely so-called, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. Grace be with thee. Amen. Let us let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for who you are. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for using the Apostle Paul to write this letter to the to his son in the faith. Young Timothy, Lord, help us to be Timothy's today. Help us to follow these guidelines and and the leadership that you've given Paul to lead us, Lord. And most importantly, help us to follow the words of the Holy Spirit of God, your your words, Lord. And we're thankful for that this morning, Lord. Be with us. Open our hearts, Lord. Be with me as I preach what you've given to me already. Lord, help me to convey the significance and, and the excitement and, and all the things that go with this passage here this, Lord, this morning, Lord. And Lord, we love you. And we're thankful for you. We're thankful for the cross. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're going to get our, our main thrust this morning from verses 11 and 12, which begin with, but thou, but thou O man of God. And that's going to be the entitle of our message. I know that's a, kind of a, a short title, but I hope you get the, the emphasis I'm trying to make. It. There's a lot of things this world is living by, but thou, man of God, we should be living a different way. A different way. I want to read those two verses again. It says, But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness, fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. Now this, this, excuse me, this verse here is clearly a reference to some previous passages that we already read in the first part of that chapter and maybe even alluding to the rest of what Paul has written here. It contrasts Timothy, who is the man of God, with these other folks who did not flee from these things. Right, so there's Timothy, the man of God, and then there's these folks who did not flee from these things. So verse 11 and 12, again, is where we'll get our challenge from this morning. But in order to do that, we must look at that contrast. Look at some of the things that Paul writes here. In other words, what sort of things should the man of God flee from? And what sort of things did these folks not flee from? So let's look at verses 1 and 2 again. He says, Let as many servants that are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, that the name of God and His doctrine be not blasphemed, and they that have believing masters, let them not despise them, because they are brethren, but rather do them service, because they are faithful and beloved partakers of the benefit. These things teach and exhort, Timothy. This chapter begins, therefore, uh, with some guidance on how you and I as Christians 
should honor those who are over us in authority or whatever position they mean uh, that there is, especially if they are believers. I didn't make that up. It's right there in the text. You can see that. But I want to point out the word used for masters is a reference to authority, of course. And when we incorporate the entire counsel of the Word of God, even here in 1 Timothy, it easily includes all positions of authority. As Christians, I think this is very applicable for us today, we are to honor all positions of authority. Period. We are to honor them. So these two verses, in summary, imply that we are to be model citizens. Which really builds off the foundation that Paul already laid in chapter 2. If you want to look at that real quick, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul writes, if you remember this, we preached about this a couple weeks ago, that we are to pray for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life. Now, who was the king of the world? Who was the most powerful man when Paul wrote that? Who was Caesar? Nero. So Nero's a wicked man. Paul says pray for him. So regardless of who we got in front of us, whoever's sitting on our city council or the president or chancellor of any nation, we are to pray for them. Why? So that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life. And when we compare the imperatives here in the first century, in this first century epistle to Timothy, we can easily walk away thinking that these things were written yesterday to us. We could, we could easily see that. So despite what goes on today, we are to honor authority. Yes, we should be wise as serpents. We should be harmless as doves. But we should also be obedient, even to the cross if need be. Obedient like the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, later on in this chapter, Paul uses the obedience of Christ here in chapter 6. His obedience before Pontius Pilate, who is a position of earthly authority. And he said, Jesus witnessed a good confession. He professed who he was. Before others. Granted, like the apostles in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, we ought to obey God rather than men. But this is only a contrast when man's law contradicts God's law. And speaking of obedient, as I was putting this together, I want to point out this thought came to my mind. I want to point out that we are not obedient as Christians to earn God's favor. We don't go and do our devotions. We don't read. We don't come to church and walk out here. Man, I'm so glad God's glad that I went to church. That's not the way it works. We need this. We read our Bible because it's for us. And we are not obedient to earn His favor or grace. We are obedient because we already have it. We already have His love. A husband does things for his wife and, and vice versa because they already have that love. And if He in fact is your Savior, our commitment, this is very important I think to get a hold of, our commitment is not to some creed. It's not just some statement of faith from any church or, or philosophy of life. Our commitment is to a person. That's different than, being, than going by the Ten Commandments. Our commitment is to a person. For example, this world, and we know them, they're all around, they're in the workplace, but this world is filled with people who won't lie because it's wrong. Right? We know those people. They're everywhere. We're, we're some of them, hopefully. But there's many people, even Christians, who will lie for their spouse who will lie for a loved one. My father has told me many times, you get in trouble with the law, come to me, I'll hide you. <laughs> and I, I didn't have the courage to ask him, well, what if I did this? So I just don't go there. Um, I've told my children, you can ask my daughter, she's over in the other way, if you get in trouble and you're running from the FBI, don't come to me because I'm calling. I'm reporting you, especially if you're guilty. We need to stand 
That goes for all of y'all, by the way. And for me, too. I wouldn't, I wouldn't expect you to harbor me. If I committed murder and I come to, hey, I did this, call the police. Report. We, we, are, we are to be honorable to a, we're a call, we have a higher calling to be committed to a person, not a creed. In fact, if we are radically committed to Christ as that person, our obedience to that creed is not grievous. It's easy. Our yoke for him to carry is not hard because he carries it for us. Remember John, 1 John 5, 3? He says, this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. His commandments are easy. I don't really have a honey to-do list in my, in, my, in my house. My wife don't come on, hey, do this, do this. I do have a list by my, by my computer of things to do that we both agreed on. But when we do things for each other, if you will, we don't do it. Ah, I better go do this. She might be mad at me today or vice versa. We, we enjoy working with each other. And Christians should enjoy serving our Lord. And back in our text, Paul ends this introduction in chapter 6. Disobedience to masters, whether they be believing masters or not believing masters. He says these things teach and exhort. These things teach and exhort. Young Timothy, tell the world that this is how Christians should. Could you imagine if every true believer in the world across was radical Christian obedience to God and were model citizens and obeyed the Bible to the text? Can you imagine? Can you imagine? I think the world will be radically different. Our light would be much brighter. Our light will be much brighter. I have a, a rabbit hole. I guess I can go down for a little bit. But many times we, you know, what about my rights? What about this? You know, as a Christian before God, we have no rights. Our rights are in him. It's his rights in us. We should serve him. Our whole life should be to him. Paul says these things teach and exhort. But then he continues and he, and he kind of gets into some details here that are a little scary. He says in verse 3, if any man teach otherwise, because you, you teach these things, but if there be some people who don't, and there will, mind you, you don't, you don't listen to them. You listen to me, Timothy. You listen to the Word of God. And it continues all the way down. If you want to read through that, in verse 3 says, if any man teach otherwise, and he goes through some things and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Savior, even the words of doctrine, he's proud. Uh, and five, he says he's per, uh, he has perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds. He's destitute of the truth. And at the end of verse 5, he says, withdraw thyself. Get away from them. Withdraw, from, with, withdraw thyself. Now, we're going to come back to that command to withdraw from wickedness. But I believe verse three, verses 3 through 10 give us some attributes of these wicked individuals so that we can foresee their foolishness. We can see exactly how to recognize. Remember, what's it, Matthew chapter 7, Brother Tyler, verse 13, 14? How do we know false teachers? We know them by their fruit, by their works. So Paul's going to give us some of those works, how we recognize some of those. Now, if you're a Christian here and, and you're thinking, yeah, let's go get them like Jesus getting those Pharisees. He's got some application for us, too. There's some things in here that we have to take heart. So in these verses here, verses 3 through 5, Paul continues his description of those who oppose truth. No doubt, including those who departed from the faith that we talked about last week uh, in chapter 4. As a matter of fact, if you want to look at verse 4 again, it says, He is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strife of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, and evil surmisings. So we are told that these false teachers, get this now, right out of the test here, they're proud, 
They're ignorant and they're sick. Proud, ignorant, and sick. Now, we won't dwell on this too much, but I will say this. That phrase right there, doting about questions and strifes of words, it means that they are so engulfed with a thing, it consumes them like a disease. Strong's Concordance defines doting as this. To be taken away with such an interest in a thing as amounts to a disease. To have a morbid fondness for something. And honestly, I think we see more and more of this going around today. Sometimes we ourselves get sucked into this madness. And Paul continues by writing that they are destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness. And we see a lot of that as well today. From successful businesses to megachurches, many associate godliness to gain. Now, I'm not opposed to those things, of course, but there is a lot of attraction to money today. A lot of attraction to what money can buy. And we associate that many Christians or professing Christians associate that with godliness. God must be blessing because the bank account looks good. It doesn't work that way. Again, it's not inherently sinful to be prosperous, but there are some serious warnings here from Paul to Timothy. Paul, Timothy, again, he's not some 19-year-old. He's probably in his 40s. He's probably young 40s here. Tim, Paul is probably in his 60s writing this. So Timothy is not some young chicken, if you will, but he's still given him some ideas and some warnings about money and about wealth and all those things. And I want to get I want to point out four truths here this morning about material wealth. Look at verse six, verse six again. It says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Material wealth, very simply, does not equal godliness. It just doesn't. There's not even a hinge. It does not equal godliness, nor does it bring contentment. Contentment is a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the heart when it's yielded to the Holy Spirit. And I think the thought here is that if our contentment is fulfilled with material things, if we try to be content with material things, we will never be content. It's never going to happen. There will always be something new or something better, something more practical, maybe a better duty station, a better church, a better pastor, a better spouse. There's all kinds of things that we can look for over and over and over again. But our contentment cannot be in those things. Maybe we look for a better paycheck, maybe even better friends. But our contentment cannot be in those things. It must be found in God. It must be found in godliness. That is great gain. And then notice verse 7. Verse 7 says, For we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain that we can carry nothing out. Material wealth does not endure. It's not going to last forever. Remember when we went through, uh, I think it was First Peter, I think it was, when we stand before a holy God? Right after him talking about that, him, Peter writing about that, he mentioned that the whole world is going to be consumed. It's going to melt with fervent heat. In other words, when you're standing before God, you're not going to be able to go, what? Hey, what about, it's all going to be gone. It's all going to be gone. Material wealth does not endure. It's clear and obvious. We didn't come into this world with a Camaro or a computer or whatever it might have been, and we certainly won't live, leave with it. Now, again, being wealthy in and of itself is not sinful. God blessed King Solomon with great riches, did he not? And God continues to bless many Christians today with great riches. I think most of us here are blessed with great riches. But it's how we perceive these riches and what we do with them that matter most. I think when we get to heaven, I think when I get to heaven, I'm going to be, I'm going to remember all the things that I held on to with such security 
I'm like, how ridiculous I was holding on to those material things. Remember, if contentment could have been found in wealth or worldly pleasures or a number of other things, King Solomon would have found it. He would have found it. But he wrote in Ecclesiastes 5.10, He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver, or nor he that loveth abundance with increase. This is vanity. This is vanity. And then look at verse 8. And having food and raiment, let us therewith, or let us be therewith content. Material wealth is not essential. It's not essential. This verse clearly states that we should be content with what we need, what we have already. To, now, this, this word need, I think it's a very subjective word today. And it can be defined differently by each person. You know, I need... 12 gigabytes of data. My son probably needs 100 gigabytes of data. And of course, I'm being a little crazy there, but need, the Bible defines needs as having food and raiment. Food and raiment. All of us have food and raiment. All of us should be content. Raiment means covering and certainly includes clothes, but it could also include a roof over our head. We have all these. I've told all of my children, as long as I'm alive and I have food, raiment, and shelter, you will always have food, raiment, and shelter. Regardless of how you live your life, you will always have a place to come home. Now, you're going to live a certain way when you come home. Hopefully, they're already living that way when they're gone, but you will always have this to fall back onto. We should be content with these things. God's blessed me, and I think God's blessed all of us here. Again, having more than this is not, praise God. It's not a sin, praise the Lord, because we all have more than that here. I'm preaching from an iPad. I'm looking at an iPad. I have a television here. There's a television back there in this church. We all have probably more than one television in our room. Our cell phones cost more than cars did 20 years ago. Right? So we've been blessed. Immensely we've been blessed. So having more than food and raiment is not necessarily a sin. It's how we use those things. And then look at number letter D there. Lust for material wealth produces sin. Lust for material wealth produces sin. Look at verses 9 and, and 10 again. It says, But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Now this is a passage of much controversy, and I think one of the reasons it's of much controversy because people who read the Bible love money. I'll just be honest with you. We like money. Christians like money. But Paul gives us a serious warning about a desire for riches in these verses. Notice that passage again in verse 9. Uh, but they that will be rich. That's not like they who will soon be rich. That word will means they who are determined to be rich. They who all they work for is to be rich. You can put it this way. They that are determined to be rich will fall into temptation and a snare. Proverbs 23 says, verse 4 and 5 says, Labor not to be rich. Cease from thine own wisdom. Wilt thou set thine eyes upon that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings, and they fly away as an eagle toward heaven. We must seek first the kingdom of God. Again, there's certainly nothing wrong with desiring to have a better life and better things for our children, and better things that ease us and make us, help us to live our lives with ease. There's nothing wrong with that, but there's a grave, grave danger involved if the goal of our efforts is to be rich. As Christians, this should not define us. 
Verse 9 says, it drowns men in destruction. In other words, your desire or my desire for wealth will consume us. It will consume us. And it will destroy us. The Bible says, for the love of money is the root of all evil. Now, verse 10 is the subject of even much more debate. What could that possibly mean? And the leading interpretations are this. Money is the root of all evil. Or money is a root of all evil. Or money is the root of all kinds of evil. But I got to tell you, in the Greek, it's the love of money is the root of all evil. I'm not alone in that. There are, there are liberal theologians who agree with that. And it was the main text in every version of the Bible until just not that long ago, 100 years or so. What changed? It was good enough for Luther to put the love of money is the root of all evil. Personally, I believe the verse points back to the previous verse and refers to those who are determined to be rich. From them, the love of money, and it doesn't get off the hook, off the hook but the love of money is the root of all evil because the love for power, the love for prestige, the love for influence, the love for sin, at its very core, the Bible says, is connected to the love of money. This is what the text says. What did God say in the Sermon on the Mount? Love or trust God? Or how's the verse go? You cannot serve God and mammon. Money. You cannot serve. Why did Christ put that, Christ put that together? Because that is a crutch for us. We want to love money. And that phrase, love of money, is actually one word in the Greek. It's where we get the word avarice from. Uh, it's defined as a love for money, greedy for money, greedy for material gain, for material wealth. And it has quite a few synonyms in our English language today, like covetousness, materialism. Uh, I think when Lisa's were here, she taught the kids, they call it the gimme gimmies. I got the gimme gimmies. I want something. I want some stuff, right? That's what the, we, we as adults, we, we also have the gimme gimmies. I am guilty of having the gimme gimmies. I got to strike that from the record on YouTube there. But anyway, <laughs> we may not think that the love of money or the love of wealth may be the root of our sins. But the Bible says it is. This desire leads to sin, Paul says, which brings us to verse 11. So after he informs Timothy, his son of the faith, and after the Holy Spirit of God informs us this morning from the text that material wealth does not equal godliness, material wealth is not lasting, it's not needed, and the desire, the lust for material wealth leads to sin. In verse 11 he says, but thou. But thou, O man of God, flee these things. Flee from sin. Flee from these things that lead to sin. Flee from discontentment. You know, some people, and, and I'm one of them from time to time, I'm, I'm, I'm sure of it. Sometimes we're just never content. We're never content. No matter how good we get it, we just want more and more and more. But I'm not in that boat alone. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure there's one or two of us that go in there from time to time. God says, flee from discontentment. Discontentment. Now, I preached a message maybe a year ago that bitterness is like a foothold. We do everything right in our life and we have some bitterness in our heart. It's like leaving the door open for the devil. And he comes right in and exploits everything else. Discontentment is the same way. It's a seam that will always get exploited by the, by the devil. God says, flee discontentment. Get out of there. Run from it, he says. Listen, we're not talking about fear here. We'll see next, next week that God has not given us a spirit of fear. We're talking about sin. The Bible says get away from it. Flee from sin. Flee discontentment. 
it's going to destroy you. Verse 9 makes that very, very clear. It drowns men in destruction and perdition. Listen, these men desired great gain. They desired great wealth because they equated that wealth with godliness. If we ever get to a point at Holmfield Baptist Church where, look at the new building we have, look at this new parking lot, look at this nice wooden pulpit that really didn't cost us anything, but all these great things we got, God must be with us. That is not the, that's not the sign of God being with us. Spiritual growth is the sign of God being with us. We want to grow spiritually. And I'm convinced if we grow spiritually, we will automatically grow numerically. And God will bless in many other things if He wants to bless. But we are commanded to grow spiritually. Don't let discontentment drown you. It will hurt your testimony. It will hurt your walk with the Lord. And it will eventually cause you to err in the faith. Simple discontentment. I want what's next. Even in the little things. We must flee discontentment. Discontentment with material wealth or the determination to gain material wealth is not godliness. In fact, it's godlessness. It's godlessness. In 1 Thessalonians 5.22, the Bible says, Paul wrote again, abstain from all appearance of evil. We don't like that verse. We don't like that verse at all. Abstain from all appearance of evil. And you can probably add right there in verse 11, add that with verse 11. Paul can say, Timothy, abstain from all appearance of evil because thou art a man of God. You are a Christian. You are a Christian. Flee from these things. And you and I need to also flee from these things. Three other times Paul charges his readers to flee. In 1 Corinthians 6 verse 18, he says, flee fornication. In 1 Corinthians 10 14, he says, flee from idolatry. And in 2 Timothy 2 22, he says, flee from youthful lust. These are all still very relevant for us today. Timothy, as a man of God, was charged to always flee from sin. And we, as children of God, are charged to flee from sin. We're charged to run from it. Listen, if, I think if we truly knew the dangers of sin, if we truly recognize the gravity and the seriousness that goes along with sin, the same sin that Christ paid for on the cross. I mean, Christ didn't come because sin wasn't serious. He came because sin was serious. That's the, the, the sin that Christ paid for. And if we can have that same perspective of even those little sins in our lives and we flee from them, we'll live a much better life and we'll bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll live a much holier life and not to live it holy, but to bring glory to God. We're to flee from sin. Now, I certainly, I do not know where you are in your walk. I don't. But maybe God has reminded you this morning of a few sins, some few things in your mind. Maybe he has brought to your attention some sins in your life that you're not running from. Maybe they're there and you're not running from them. Flee from them. Be obedient to God. Run from those sins. Run from those things. But notice also that Paul doesn't finish there. In verse 11, he says, But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and meekness. Follow righteousness. Follow righteousness. You know, isn't it great to know that God never lets us doubt where to run to? He never gives us a command without giving us how to, make, how to follow that command. He says, run from it, but don't just run in some arbitrary direction. Run to God. Run to the Lord Jesus Christ. Run. Follow after righteousness. 
You know, in the Old Testament, they, they created cities of refuge where one was, if he was guilty of something, like he killed somebody by accident or even on purpose, he would go to that city of refuge and he would await his trial and all these things like that. And then if he was found guilty, he would be punished. If he was set free, he can go set free. But those he wronged were not allowed to go into the city of refuge or they would suffer the same punishment that the, uh, the one who committed the crime. And that person, that person that was in the refugee uh, city, the, refu- the city of refuge, if he were to leave that city of refuge and the person he wronged killed him, the person who, in the Old Testament now, this is not, this is not today, would be free of the charge because he, did, he didn't do what he was supposed to do. I say all that to say this. Jesus is our city of refuge. The Bible says in Psalm 46, God is our refuge, verse 1, and strength. A very present help in trouble. So we don't just flee from ungodliness. We flee to godliness. We run to God. We follow after righteousness, faith, love, patience, and meekness. We follow Jesus Christ. Truthfully, for any, of us, any one of us to be a man of God, a woman of God, a child of God, we must flee from sin and follow Jesus Christ. There is no other way. There must be repentance of the heart. That's what repentance means. In verse 17 of Matthew 4, right in the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he says, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. His first sermon, repent, for the kingdom of God is at heaven. Repent, again, means to change direction. When we flee from something and follow something different, that's repentance. That's what salvation is about. That's what coming to Christ is all about. Fleeing from sin and following Him. Think, think of Jesus when He was walking by. In that same passage there in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 4, He says, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then just a few verses later, He's walking by some people on a fishing boat. Right? Peter and Andrew. And what does He tell them? He says, Follow Me. The next words out of His mouth. Follow Me. Repent. And follow me. That's repentance. Flee those nets. Flee your old life. Flee all the vices that came with your old life. And follow me. And Paul puts it in this way. Follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and meekness. And if you think about it, who really personifies those attributes? There's only one person. And that's Jesus Christ. We are to follow Him. He is Jesus Christ the righteous. The definition of godliness. He created faith. He is love. He's more patient than Job and more meek than Abraham. Jesus Christ, we are to follow Him. So if we want to follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness, what do we do? We follow Him. We follow Him. Again, that's the only way it's going to happen. Friends, we need Him for salvation. We need Him for sanctification and every other aspect of our life. And let me just point out a couple things here. If you are a Christian and you are having trouble following these things, I suggest that you stop trying to follow those things and follow Jesus Christ. Stop trying to act righteous. Stop trying to act godly or act faithful, act lovingly. Stop trying to be patient. Stop trying to act meek and follow Jesus Christ. Just follow Christ. I think Matthew 6.33 again applies here. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. Follow Jesus Christ. And if you're having trouble following Jesus Christ, I have one question. How is your fleeing? Have you fled from the sins in your life? 
Are you drowning in sinfulness? Have you repented and turned to Jesus Christ? Have you fled from that sin? Or are you still enjoying those sins for a season? Is there unconfessed sin in your life? We all sin. We all sin. Every one of us. The key is keeping it confessed. Keep a short list of your sins before God. Be in a perpetual state of repentance. Get, be in a, in a hurry to take your sins to God. I don't know why we tarry. Sometimes, yeah, I'll ask for His forgiveness tonight maybe. Don't, don't wait. Just ask for it. Make it right. He'll forgive you. He's faithful and just. He'll forgive you. And then I want to think, if you're, if you're having trouble following the Lord, how fast are you fleeing? How fast are you fleeing? I would suggest that if this is sin over here, the piano is just wicked. Right? And we want to run. Sometimes we want to run to it. I suggest that when we turn to Christ, we should run to Christ as fast as we ran towards the sin. I'm thinking it's usually not as fast as that. It's usually a whole lot easier to fall. That's why we call it falling, because we fall into wickedness. But we have to climb to righteousness. We have to climb and work hard, but run to Jesus. You know, we can be like that back into the practical position of righteousness before God, just from Him forgiving our sins and us giving those to Him. And if you're not a Christian this morning, if you do not have a personal relationship with Christ, if you're not saved, your response is the same. Run from sin. Flee from those wicked ways, from those worldly desires. Flee from trying to do everything yourself. I'll make it to heaven. Without Christ, we're drowning in our own destruction. The Bible says very clearly here, our desires have consumed us and propelled us to perdition. Christ is our only hope. Christ is your only hope. But we must repent and put our faith in Him and call upon Him. You all know the story. I like like preaching the gospel. The Bible says, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you haven't done that today, make today that day. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. And it says, if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. It's that simple. It doesn't worry about, don't worry about what you did or what kind of person you are, how good you are, how bad you are. Simple. Come to Christ. Throw your sins on the altar. He forgives you. It's done. You have eternal life. Isn't that great? The simple approach to God. We must flee from sin. Flee from self sometimes and of course flee from Satan and run to God. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Change directions. Don't follow your heart. The world is wrong. Follow Jesus Christ. Flee and follow. Repent and believe. If I can put it back in context here, Paul is saying, oh man of God, flee from these things. Oh, Christian, flee from these things and follow righteousness. If you're still with me this morning, we've gotten to a little bit of depth, a little bit of sin this morning. We talked about those things. I have one more main point to give you very quickly. But first, I want to point out that this pulpit and any godly pulpit is not meant to discourage you. I am not here to berate anyone. I'm not here to talk about your sins. I do not know your sins. But God has called me to preach this book And I want to do it the best that I know how. It's never easy. Some messages are harder than others. But my point is don't get weary in well-doing. Don't look down and say, oh, woe is me. I got all these sins in here. God doesn't care about them. Confess them. Get it out of the way. And God could use you. He just wants a willing heart. A willing heart. You could be the darkest, most wicked person in this world. You give your life to Christ. He can use you. I promise you that. 
His blood is efficient enough. Don't get weary in well-doing, Christian. We're not perfect, but we serve a forgiving God who enables us to keep on going and going and going despite who we are. We're only human. And it takes, I'm convinced, it takes an enormous amount of fortitude to live godly in this world. But God knows these things. Jesus Christ lived these things, which is why he tells us first to flee from sin and to follow Jesus Christ, to follow righteousness. But then he comes to this end here. Look at verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith. Fight. The pattern here is important, I think. Look, look at verses 11 and 12 again. But thou, O man of God, flee from these things. Follow Jesus Christ, if I can put that in there. Verse 12, fight the good fight of faith. Don't just sit back and say, oh, I can't serve God. Stand up, pull your bootstraps up, and let God enable you to fight that good fight of faith. And again, this pattern is important. We are to flee from sin, follow righteousness, and then fight the good fight of faith. Friends, this must be the... This must be the pattern. Picture, if you will, some physical attributes of this spiritual application. When I was in the army, I did a stint with some military intelligence. And sometimes you, you have, this is way back in the old days, they had horse blankets. Remember horse blankets? You know, you get the map, you get an overlay, and you draw the enemy's positions on there. And then you put another overlay on there, you draw the good guy's position, positions, and you, you compare all of them. But imagine this, you got... On our overlay up here, we have all the bad guys in one, all the sin on one side, and we have the good guys on the other side. It's like, it's like a standoff. So this is like the physical attributes here that God is telling us here. You were once a part of the enemy. You were once in there as a Christian, but then you fled to Jesus, and now Jesus is with you. He's the captain of your salvation. He's the leader of your soul and all that there is, and He tells you to fight. But we don't fight without Him. We follow Him into the battle. When we are by the enemy, God tells us to escape the enemy, flee from sin, and then find and follow Him. And when we get close to Jesus, when we fled the sin, when we've conducted a link up, if you will, with the Lord, He then leads the battle. He becomes the captain of our salvation, and we follow Him into our battles And remember, we are more than conquerors in Christ. We can do all things through Him. The key to getting victory over sin in this world and in our lives is following Jesus Christ. That's just all there is to it. Follow Jesus Christ. Look at verse 11 and 12. But thou, O man of God, fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called, and have professed a good profession before many witnesses. This imperative to fight is not to the Lord. It's to us. It's not to the Lord. Even though He's the King of battle, sorry artillerymen, Jesus is the King of battle, but (laughs) the ought to is to us. The ought to is for Christians to fight. We are to fight the good fight of faith. I say that to say this. God, through His Holy Word, has commanded us to fight the good fight, but He has not left us without leadership or enablement. He doesn't tell us to fight and leave us hanging. He stays there with us. He is there to the end. He has come alongside of us and within us as the person of the Holy Spirit to lead, guide, and enable. In fact, in John 14, who does Jesus call the Holy Spirit? The Comforter, Parakletos in the Greek, one who comes alongside to help, to assist, an advocate. 
So in this life, God has chosen to partner with you and me to make us more like Him and to advance His kingdom through the Great Commission. He didn't say go and live this life. He's partnering with us. He is there with us. He needs to be the senior partner, mind you. I don't know if we can even call it partnership because it's, it's greatly lopsided. It should be. Sometimes we think we're the senior partner. But He has partnered with us, with us to help us live a life that brings glory to Him. And this begins with God leading and enabling us, number one, to, again, flee from sin. Leading and enabling us to follow after righteousness. And then leading and enabling us to fight the good fight of faith. Again, I cannot emphasize this enough that the onus is on us. It is our decision. God is enabled. He's won the battle. But we must take the steps. It is down here that we must do it. If you're not saved, if you do not belong to Him, the fight before you is eternal life. It weighs in the balance. The fight before you is salvation. To flee from sin and follow Jesus Christ. Receive Him as your Savior. And if you're saved, the fight before you is sanctification. To flee sin and follow Jesus Christ. That you can be more like Him and be used by Him. And this is something that's so very spectacular, so very phenomenal. It just... It should blow you away. In the fight for salvation, in the fight for sanctification, the battle is already won. He's already paid the price. Victory is in your hand. If you're a lost person, you say, yes, Lord, I'm coming to you. I receive you as my Savior. It's done. It's already paid for. The cross is victorious. He's already came out of the tomb. And for our sanctification, yes, I believe in progressive sanctification. That means we get closer and closer. We should be getting closer and closer to the Lord. When He returns, we'll all be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. But that sanctification here on this earth is yours for the taking. It has already been paid for. Your blood or His blood is over our sin for salvation and over our sin for sanctification. It is enough. So those besetting sins that we, that we always go back to, they've been paid for. They are under the blood. God has enabled us to overcome them. So what does that bring us when we don't overcome them? If God has enabled us to, to overcome them and we choose not to overcome them, that's not Him. That's not on Him. That's on us. And we are shirking our duties. We're derelict. And our duty is to live for the Lord Jesus Christ when He has enabled us to live a holy life. That's just spectacular. Our salvation has been paid for. Our sanctification has been paid for and enabled. All we have to do is flee from sin, follow righteousness, and fight the good fight of faith. Again, the battle is won. The cross is enough. But your personal victory is in your hands. It's all paid for. It's all done. We don't do anything. But we must receive it. We must make the choice to receive it. The onus is on you. The Bible, especially the New Testament, is filled with hundreds of ought to's. Live, live, live. If it was all us on autopilot, why all the ought to's, if you will? Why all the motivational speaking, if you will, in the text to help us live, for Christians to live a godly life? The only conclusion is I have to take my life and live it for Him and surrender it to Him. Only in Christ can we win these battles. Do you want victory of a certain son? Flee from it. Follow righteousness and follow Jesus Christ. 
into that good fight of faith. Only in Christ, again, can we win these battles. You and I have no power over sin, self or Satan for that matter, but Christ who lives in us can conquer all. Again, it's in Christ. He has overcome the world. He's going to have no problem with your besetting sin. But again, we ourselves must flee from it. We must follow Him so that He may win our victories. I'll leave you with this, this challenge this morning. Make a commitment today, Christian, to live righteously. Make a commitment to follow godliness. Make a commitment to be faithful. Make a commitment to be patient. Make a commitment to be meek. Make a commitment to follow righteousness and give your entire life, all of you, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because as Christians, when we flee from sin and we follow Christ above all else in our lives, He will enable us to keep those commitments that we want to keep and win the battles. He will help us fight the good fight of faith. We will not only set an example for others, we will not only be used to lead others to Christ, but the best of all, our life will reflect Jesus Christ and we will bring glory to God in heaven. Think about that. What a great concept that is. My life, my itty-bitty little 48-year-old body that's beaten war and it's going to get war and war and worse as time goes on, but little me in little Parsburg, Germany, out in the middle of nowhere, nobody knows who I am, my life can bring glory to the Creator God. My life can bring glory to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And so can yours. You are somebody to God. Bring glory to Him. Yes, there may be some who are drowning in their own cesspool of sin. Yes, there may be some who suppose that gain is godliness. But thou, O man of God, flee these things. Follow righteousness and fight the good fight of faith. Let us pray.